we came in there, there was RPGs flying past us, there was mortars impacting around us, and uh, the Marines were pinned under the bridge, and a lot of them had run out of ammunition. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're, you're going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt like something. She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In this episode, we meet Warrant Officer Class 1 Craig Cook, who has spent more than 30 years in the Australian Army as a member of the Royal Australian Armoured Corps. His operational experience is extensive. He served in Somalia, Afghanistan, and three times in Iraq, twice with US forces, who've recognised his achievements with a Meritorious Service Medal and a Bronze Star. Today, he's a Regimental Sergeant Major at 9th Brigade in South Australia, where we've met to record today's podcast. RSM, thanks very much for joining us on Life on the Line. It's a pleasure to be here, Sharon. So tell us first of all how you came to join the Australian Army. Why was that an appealing career for you when you were growing up? It was due to the fact that I spent a lot of time with my grandfather in the the town I grew up in, Exmouth. He was an artillery warrant officer in artillery in the Second World War. And I'd spent a lot of weekends up there listening to him talk and going through all his stuff that he had made. That was my intrigue into the army and Exmouth being a, a Navy town. But um, as I said, the stories from my grandfather really inspired me to be a soldier. So what kind of things did he tell you when you were a young boy? Oh, it was mainly, the, I suppose, the funny sides of, of his time in the Middle East and then and later on in the um, in New Guinea and, and, and Bougainville. The things that he made, the shells and and um, the belts and so forth out of moth wings and, and the exotic places, I suppose, that he visited as, as a soldier. And um, I used to, I suppose, playing with all that used to intrigue me. So when you were growing up, I mean, what did the army signify for you? What did you associate with it? As I said, Exmouth being a Navy town mainly, um, travelling and doing exciting things, I, I suppose. Yeah. To me, the Army was more exciting than the Navy because I had a... Um, I loved the outdoors. I loved bush. I loved camping. And and, um, and I used to love going hunting because we used to do a lot of hunting in, in Exmouth. So, yeah, so I think that, that intrigued me more than the Navy. You must have then had that stage when you made the decision to go to the recruiting office and actually put your name down on the piece of paper. So just talk us through how that came about. I originally applied when I was uh, 15 as an apprentice mechanic. I also enjoyed cars, so I, I thought of about getting a trade within the army and at the time it was fairly hard to get into the army as, a, as an apprentice there was the intakes were very small and um, I got into a bit of trouble when I was a young fella and uh, when I went to recruiting they actually advised me to wait off 18 months and then apply as a, a general enlistment so that's what I did I went in reapplied and I actually got taken into the army reserve first again there was a, a bit of um, freeze on um, the regular army so they encouraged everyone in West Australia at the time that was applying was to to do 12 months in the Army Reserve. And I did that for 12 months at the 16th Battalion and um, I still had a, an inkling to go into the regular army. So I was as soon as I got a phone call, I was I think I was more excited than I was when I was in the reserves. 
So you just mentioned there that you got into a bit of trouble. So obviously that wasn't a factor then. When you actually got to the recruiting stage, that there was no dramas. There was. There was a bit of drama with that. And defence recruiting were very open to the fact that maybe they thought that um, it was best if I, I went off and did some um, some military service. And obviously that must have been the right thing for you. It sounds like as a young man, as a teenager, that you were looking for something. Uh, I was. And, and that was due to the fact when we left Exmouth, I suppose. I was 15 years old when I left Exmouth and, and moved to the city to Perth. I think I got bored living in Perth and I tend to get in, got into a little bit of, of trouble. So, And um, I think I was given a second chance. to. It was keen to join the army. They knew that and they thought that was the best way to go. It's a common narrative, though, that for many young men, joining the military is about getting that second chance. So just talk us through what happened for you when you went to Kapuka. I was only 17. I was just shy of turning 18. I don't think it was a big eye-opener because I'd spent um, the 12 months in, in the Army Reserve. And that was good too because I, I think at the time the Reserves had a lot of um, full-time soldiers in it. That was, it was the constant, the training. So I think the training in the Reserves prepared me for Kapuka. So Kapuka wasn't a, as much of a shock as I suppose when I went back there in later years as, as an ARI and the young 17, 18-year-olds coming in, they had no idea what they were getting into. The Reserves actually set me up for success in Kapuka. And what was the training like? I mean, you say that you managed it really well and it didn't come as a shock to you, but there must have been elements of it which still stand out for you even today. The fitness levels and the challenges that were put up, because back then it was the BFA was a five-kilometre run. That was hard. Or well, initially it was hard. The 22-kilometre route pack marches with, with a pack on and, and the challenges. And to be honest with you too, getting up at six o'clock in the morning and polishing floors and polishing brass, I think that was a big thing while I went to Armoured Corps so I didn't have to polish brass again. That routine of getting up at six o'clock in the morning and having set routine, going to breakfast, and everything was on a short timeline. So that was a challenge. So was it when you were going through your training that you suddenly realised you were drawn to the Armoured Corps? Was it then that it happened or was that chosen for you? Well, originally I wanted to continue on with the infantry because, as I said, I started off in the 16th Battalion, Royal West Australian Regiment. I was very keen to continue with that. And when we did our aptitude tests, there was out of a platoon of 48 and the platoon I was in in five platoon and then there was another 48 in four platoon, our sister platoon, there was only four positions available for Armoured Corps. And back then you didn't, you didn't get to choose what you wanted. You asked. I asked for Armoured Corps, or sorry, Infantry, Armoured Corps, and Infantry, I think it was, because we had to put three choices down, and we weren't allowed to put the same choices down. And I think it was after the aptitude test, they went through and they actually called your name out and said the following soldiers are going to go to the to the following corps. So it was a bit of a shock, actually, when I got Armoured Corps, because it wasn't my preferred choice. But uh, since I've been there, I, I've never looked back. What did it signify for you, then, being assigned to the Royal Australian Armoured Corps? What did that mean for you at the time? It was the start of, of a career, because I'd always... When I got in there, I, I initially signed up for six years because back in the day when I enlisted, you initially signed up for three years and six years. So I, I had a, an inkling that I was going to do 20 years in the Army. And, and the Armoured Corps, as I said, I, I knew about the infantry. I didn't know too much about the Armoured Corps. And it really didn't show anything until I arrived in Puckapunyal and I saw a leopard tank for the first time you know, in real life. And um, I figured that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be on tanks. But the next morning when I woke up and it was minus four degrees and um, coming from the top end of West Australia where it's hot, I decided that um, the life of the cavalry was going to be me because the cavalry regiments were located in a warmer climate. You say the first time that you saw a leopard tank was obviously a seminal moment. So what was it about the tank that just captured your imagination and, and really meant something to you? I would say the size and the noise. 
when that tank came rumbling past as we got off the bus from Kapuka, we got off the bus near a um, the tank track and not far from 1st Armoured Regiment because the 1st Armoured Regiment back in the day was co-located with the, with the Armoured Centre. Yeah, and seeing that um, that tank rolling down, the tank strip rolling out to go filled and then followed by another one, yeah, it was, it was that noise, that grumbling noise that a leopard tank makes. And within a few years, you got your first deployment. So talk us through that because that was to Somalia. Uh, yeah, that was so. That was I joined the army in '85, served in three four cav, and then I went to two cav, and then I went back to three four cav in Townsville. So we went to Somalia in about '93. So I didn't know what to think at the time because I was uh, on transit from um, two cav to Townsville to join three four cav, and it was all over the news that they're deploying troops to Somalia, and, and I was a corporal at that stage. And I think back on it, you know, I was like, oh yeah, here we go. I'm the new boy in the block, I'm going up there. I'm going to spend the next, you know, three months, six months, whatever the length of the deployment is, on guard. Because it was over Christmas time, so I thought all postings would be cancelled. And it wasn't until I made the phone call to the unit because I was visiting a friend at, at 2nd 14th Light Horse in Brisbane that I got told I had to ring Townsville, 3 4 cavalry trying to get hold of me. So I rang them up and they said, look, you're in Brisbane, you need to be in Townsville in 18 hours' time because you're deploying to Somalia. So I was a little bit shocked. I thought, oh, this is real. It's been a lot of the news and now we've been given this deployment order because we're trained and trained and trained. And, um, you know, we've been warned out a couple of times for Namibia and um, Cambodia when I was in TUCAV, different elements of us as individual embeds. But, um, yeah, when I got told, you've got to be here, you're deploying, you know, in 10 days' time. I laughed at the end of it when they said to me, and oh, and if you happen to see your wife, can you tell her that she's deploying as well? And I thought, well, that's strange. I'm, I'm on leave with my wife travelling to Townsville, so one would think that I'm definitely going to see her. So you deployed with your wife. Isn't that quite unusual? It is. Um, so I think Somalia was totally unusual because um, the deployment itself, it was, as I said, it happened over Christmas time. Joanne, she was a sergeant in uh, nursing corps. She's the last of the OR nurses. So she had just come out of um, the military hospital at, at uh, Ingleburn to get back and tell her that she was deploying too with the, with the Basby. Yeah, it was it was different. Most people tend to deploy and leave their spouses behind, but actually to go together it was. And I think that whole deployment, we had myself and Joanne were, were married and then in Joanne's platoon, she had another married couple that were the two medics that deployed. So there was two husband and wives over there, several sets of brothers, a father and son, and also myself, I had a cousin there in the same unit. So yeah, it was, it was a challenge for General Hurley at the time. He was the CEO of the battalion because he had to keep the spouses separated. It was a good challenge. It sounds though there was a very close-knit community that you obviously had that real a sense of connection because you all knew each other so well. Uh, yes, and it, it was. It, the whole deployment and the battalion and the, and the units, especially with 1RER and 3-4 CAV, they, they were very close together and they've spent a lot of time working together. So the, the connection with the battalion and the, and the squadron was it was very tight and even the people coming into the unit seemed to, to gel straight away. So it was, yeah, it was very good. How important was that then for the success of the mission? I mean, perhaps fill us in a bit about what you were there to do and how that sense of community within the cohort was actually key to what you managed to achieve? Well, I think, to be honest with you, it was an exciting time for all of us. I think there was 989 deployed. I think we were excited at the fact that we were the first soldiers to deploy on combat operations since Vietnam. I mean, Cambodia had been going, Namibia had gone off in the 1990s or early 90s, followed by Cambodia and, and now this. But to have the 1st Battalion and 3-4 Cav deploy as combat troops, I think that was, it was more exciting for us because, as I said, it was the first combat deployment since Vietnam. We didn't know what we're getting into. I think the way that our intel and everything was done in those days, it was, here's a country brief and it was done from Wikipedia. 
And I think it was exciting for the fact that we were deploying, so none of us knew what we were getting into. And as I said, we all seemed to get on quite well. We gelled, we trained hard together, so we knew each other. As Australians, believe it or not, those deployments, those early deployments, and they were one-off, it was excitement. And Australians go in to do jobs into the unknown, and I think we we're open and we we're more acceptable to people, feelings and, and understanding. So to go in there into Somalia, which was a humanitarian relief, well, it started off as a humanitarian relief with the UN, and when the UN failed, the UNTAF went in behind them to, to sort it all out so that the UN could get back in there. So I think the combat forces that went in there into Mogadishu and then followed by us into to Baidoa, I think it was, we didn't know what what we were facing at the time and I think it was it overwhelmed us when we got there but then when we hit the ground and we saw what we had to do Australian soldiers don't stop they just look at it and go that's the task and they get on with it. So just to give our audience listening to this podcast a bit more understanding what were you getting yourself into what was the situation like on the ground? Well I think Somalia had collapsed during the um, the civil war you know because Somalia after the second world war was an Italian colony or started off as an Italian colony before before the second world war and then when the Italians were defeated become a British colony and then the British gave it back to the, the Italians when the Italians came back to the allied forces and then Italy got out. If you read the history on it, I think, I think Somalia was, was Italy's Vietnam War. There's a lot of Italian soldiers died in the civil unrest over there and eventually they pulled out. So Somalia again took on Kenya, took on Ethiopia and you know the Americans backed them, the Soviets backed them and it, and it eventually ended up collapsing into civil war. So when we got in there, it was um, civil unrest. It was starving. I think by Dale, the city we went into was the city of death and it was uh, they estimated a thousand people a day were dying of starvation. And that was all our briefs, was that we were going to be facing. And it wasn't, I suppose, hordes of warlords. You know, we were expecting that. But I think the other thing that was drummed into us, that we were going in there to a country that was in famine. What were you facing there on a daily basis? I mean, was it a very dangerous, high-risk combat mission? Well, I think it was high risk because there was a lot of remnants of a lot of uncivil unrest over the years, such as, you know, mines and so forth. And we didn't know what we were up against too. And the warlords and a lot of the warlords and, and warring factions were on a drug called CAT. So when you were dealing with those sort of people, you didn't know where they were. They were. So I think the risk was there, and I think the risk is in, in any operation, um, no matter what, if it's UN peacekeeping right up to what Somalia was, was peacemaking or peace enforcement, up to high-end echelon fighting that I, I encountered when I went into Iraq with the US forces the first time. So I think the risks were there. We didn't know what we were up against, and we weren't up against a well-trained force. So we were up against a bunch of, of bandits, really, and bandits are more unpredictable than well-trained soldiers. And being there with your wife, I mean, given that was such a, a novel experience, I imagine, with your subsequent deployments, I mean, did that change things for you? I mean, was there something unique about being on operations with your spouse? She was a sergeant. I was a corporal, so she outranked me. I got a given set of orders that I wasn't allowed to be unaccompanied with her. I rarely saw her because she was in the medical treatment sections. I was in the cab troop, so we, I spent a lot of time in, in villages called Barakabar in Dinsaw, so I spent a lot of a lot of time away from Baidoa. So it was unique and it was good having her there. Mind you, I didn't get any care packages because my wife was deployed. So while everyone was getting care packages, I got MREs sent. So she would send me my favourite MREs during the, the resupply train. So yeah, and it was good because when I did come back into Baidoa, I would pop down there to have a cup of coffee with her and have a chat to see what she was up to and see how she was going. So that was that was good. And you'll have to fill me in here, MREs? Meals ready to eat. Right, so she sent you some nice food. Well, yeah, okay, you have ration packs, yeah. 
So tell us then what it was like coming home from that deployment and then what happened in those intervening years before you went off to Iraq? Well, coming home, I, I flew home. I went there by ship. Joanne flew because we weren't allowed to travel on the same aircraft or boat. So I, General Hurley sent me by sea. The two husbands went by sea and the two wives flew. But coming home, I flew. It was exciting. We were very excited because we believed that we had been very successful in our mission. I was only talking about this the other day with someone else that I went to Somalia with. And I've got the notebook I had and I've written in there um, during a set of orders that we today we've been awarded the ASM and, and I've got in brackets, what the hell's the ASM? I had to go back and find out that we had been awarded the Australian Active Service Medal. So back then, none of us were really worried about medals or anything. We were just excited to be there. So coming home, it was just as excited because we didn't know what we were coming home to. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was exciting times. We'd been successful on our deployment. And uh, I suppose a lot of us too were thinking about um, what was next. And, and I think a lot of soldiers thought, well, it'd been 20 years since Vietnam, so there was going to be 20 years after Somalia. So a lot of soldiers got out because they thought they had joined the army and done what they joined to do and there was never going to be another deployment after or it was going to be another one in 20 years. Well, we've been wrong about that. So yeah, so it was it was the exciting times when we come home as well. I think there's a lot of jealousy too in the army. A lot of us went on courses not long after that. And I remember I went on my first uh, subject course for sergeant, uh, sub four. And I remember the banter from the instructors was, oh, here's a little war heroes. You know, and we were a lot, didn't know what they were going on about. So it, it sort of, it annoyed us a little bit because as far as we were concerned, we were just excited that we had deployed to Somalia and got to do our job. And then a few years later, you were off again. Yeah, it was 2004. I was a warrant officer at this stage. I got told that I'd have been selected to go to the US Marine Corps on an exchange that we've got with the 1st LAR, the 1st Marine Division. And at that time, I was replacing a gentleman called Joe Day, and the division had just deployed into the invasion in Iraq. So Joe was just coming back, and um, I got told that the battalion could be deploying again. Wasn't sure. So when I arrived in America um, a couple of months early with the family, the 3rd Light Armoured Reconnaissance Battalion based out of 29 Palms, they were about to go into the Iraq and they were very keen to take myself as Joe Day had deployed into the invasion of Iraq. However, Australian Embassy, there was a bit of um, to and fro in and, and a delay. And by the time that I'd been given approval to deploy with 3rd LAR, they had deployed. So they were quickly trying to get me um, set up with Charlie Company from our battalion who was deploying on the, on the Mew. Uh, so I could go into the Mew, but as I was getting ready for that, the battalion received orders that the battalion was going to go back in to Iraq a couple of months after Charlie Company come out. The battalion commander, Colonel Constantini at the time, decided that he wasn't going to risk me deploying with Charlie Company, only to come home and then redeploy. His biggest fear was if I deployed and was successful with Charlie Company and was something unforgettable was to happen on a second deployment that he wouldn't be able to live with the fact that he had lost the Australian Warrant Officer. So um, my deployment was um, wasn't cancelled, it was delayed until the battalion deployed. And so I um, spent a lot of time getting the battalion deployed because I was a battalion gunner, which is the weapons officer for the uh, battalion. Spent a lot of time getting the companies skilled up, trained up, especially in the in Lab 25 gunnery. That's what we're over there for. So once we got that all done, our deployment orders were confirmed and I went in with Delta Company, which was the first company to go in. And we arrived in Kuwait and we were supposed to be in Kuwait for four days and I was supposed to receive the rest of the battalion as the battalion came in. But I touched down in Kuwait and um, six hours later, I was in Al-Assad Air Base talking to the regimental commander of uh, Regimental Com uh, Combat Team 2 of the 2nd Marine Division, ready to receive the first company in. I was only in the deck in Kuwait for about seven hours. So what was the lie of the land by the time you did get that into Iraq? What was the situation? Down the south, it had been quietened down. 
around Baghdad itself, it was still heavy fighting. Where we were up the north, up on the Syrian-Jordanian border, around that area, around Al-Assad Air Base and that, it was, um, there was still heavy, heavy resistance of Daesh and so forth. So what 2nd Marine Division was doing, the 1st Marine Division unit we deployed under the command of the 2nd Division, uh, we were going back in and clearing a lot of the cities that had been bypassed during the Thunder Run Up. So they sort of isolated the cities, bypassed them, cleared the country, and then they were going back and sorting out the cities, you know, starting with Fallujah in um, March that year. And then when, by the time we got in June August, we started clearing the, the, the remaining cities. A lot of heavy fighting still going on in the cities. That was what our job was, to go back and clear the remaining pockets of the insurgency. Talk us through perhaps one of the key battles that you're involved in. Oh, um, there's a couple. First off was probably Operation uh, Rivergate, which was up in, in Barwana, and that was probably the day I, I won the Bronze Star. Probably about 10,000 troops on the ground went into that one. There was um, Regimental Combat Team 2, which consists of four infantry battalions and our battalion, plus elements of the 82nd Airborne. We went in and we um, cordoned off the city of Barwana on both sides of the Euphrates River. We sat there for about seven days, probably about 800 metres out in a big ring of armoured vehicles around the city on both sides. And then about two o'clock in the morning, we blew the bridges. F-18s flew in and blew both bridges across the Euphrates River. And then we went in and started clearing the city. That probably went very very quietly because there'd been a lot of fighting up there prior to us getting in there and I remember that was probably one of the first things we got told when we were on the move up there 325 which was the 3rd Battalion of the 25th Marine Regiment had just lost heavy losses as we were getting ready to go up there so I think the insurgency was um, was set we went in there we had little resistance in clearing the city but it was um, the, the outskirts that we took probably the, the major resistance where the insurgency came back in and it was on that day that I remember going into um the big overpass on, on a railway bridge across the Euphrates River. We were visiting uh, White Platoon from Delta Company when, um, as I was coming in, I could see them. And I used to, each day, I used to come in a different route. The city was full of IEDs. And I always used to like to tell the Iraqis that I wasn't scared of them. So I used to come in from the outskirts and then punch into the city or into the outskirts of the town and then punch along the road and, and then marry up with the platoons that were providing security. One particular day, it was around about the um, 19th, no, earlier than that, it was a bit the 10th of, yeah, 10th of October, we were in Barwana and I was going to visit White Battalion. And my battalion, my job was, the, was as I said, the battalion jump. I was a battalion commander of the battalion commander's close protection parties. So I commanded seven LAV-25s and, and about 40 Marines. And our sole job was TAC headquarters to communicate with the rest of the battalion and provide force protection to the battalion commander and keep him alive. So I led everywhere. I was on point every day. So we're coming into um, the outskirts of Barwana to visit White Platoon. I couldn't raise him on the radio and I contacted... Delta Company, or Weapons Company, sorry. And I told them that I was coming in to see White Platoon. I couldn't raise them on the radio. Weapons Company came back and said that they were under contact. And as I looked across my left shoulder, I could see mortar impacts around the platoon. And, um, you know, you talk about training, it just kicked in. I gave a set of quick radio orders across the radio. I had the battalion commander who was right behind me. I pushed him to the rear, which upset him because Marine Colonels like to lead to the fight. But my job was to keep him alive. So the last thing I wanted was have the battalion commander committed to the fight. So I quickly pushed the battalion commander to the rear and I executed orders and we drove into a, a heavy fortified firefight and ambush on White Platoon. We came in there, there was RPGs flying past us, there was mortars impacting around us and uh, the Marines were pinned under the bridge and a lot of them had run out of ammunition because they had dismounted their lap 25 for a set of orders to get receive orders when the, the insurgency attacked coming across the Euphrates River. 
the position they were in with they were on weapons tight because the 82nd Airborne, the third of the 504, were on the other side of the Euphrates. So they were all on weapons tight and Marines follow orders. So no one was returning fire from main gun. When we hit the position, I had to make a decision to uh, dismount two Marines because there was barbed wire or constant wire across the road. So I had to clear that. So we didn't get trapped in, a, in, a, in the vehicles. And one of them, my scouts, had just given birth before we, well, his wife had just given birth before we left. And his mother, she was a uh, very good Catholic lady, a Mexican. And she told me that she knew that I was going to keep her boy alive. So trying to tell him to get out of the vehicle under heavy fire to clear the wire, you know, was, was a hard call. We had a bit of a wall, so young Flo and Petty jumped out, cleared the wire. I drove through the wire, told those two to mount back up. They waved me off and said that they were going to support the three Marines that were pinned under the bridge. And before I knew it, those two were legging across about 250 metres of open country under heavy heavy machine gun fire. So I opened up with main gun and um, and my flex mount machine gun. So I gave orders to my, my gunner to ma- open up with main gun while I covered their move with flex mount. And then we moved into a position that I could support those two and the three Marines that were already pinned under. Couldn't talk to the Lav 25s. None of their guns were firing. So I had to work out what was going on there. At the same time, trying to keep the battalion commander out of the fight and push him to the rear to provide coverage to the rear and bring my other two LAVs up to provide support. We were doing that at that time. Then young Petty and Flo decided to run back because the Marines were out of ammunition. And the Sergeant Major, the battalion Sergeant Major, Brian Ward, was on my vehicle. So Brian's throwing ammunition out to the two young Marines while I gave them cover with a flex mount Again, Sergeant Kinnicky, my gunner, was giving main gun fire to the left flank while I was covering the right flanks so that those two could get back. I still couldn't get comms with the two LAVs on the left and right flanks, so I gave Kinnicky orders and the Sergeant Major orders to give me cover fire while I dismounted and ran to the LAV on our left flank. By the time I got there, the young Marine, he was sitting there with his Kevlar, not his, with his Kevlar helmet on, not his CVC, because the drill was once they pulled into a position, they'd take their CVCs off and put their Kevlars on. Well... The last order he received, he was on weapons tight and he couldn't hear the radios. He just knew that he was getting shot at. So I quickly gave him verbal orders to start firing main gun, put his helmet on because his crew commander was pinned down with a platoon sergeant getting orders. And I had to run across to the other flank. Exactly the same thing, the young gunner sitting in his position, Cavalier helmet on, no CVC, got him to put his helmet on, gave him fire control orders and then ran back. And um, I think by the end of the time, we'd expended over 250 rounds of main armament, over 1,000 rounds of 7.62 from our vehicle alone. It was a herring day. It lasted over 75 minutes. Goodness me, what an incredible memory you have. That's what stands out. One thing from your telling of that story, I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds so organised, yet the reality must be very different. It must be very confusing, very noisy. You're having to make split-second decisions. What is the reality like of being in a situation like that? I think our drills kicked in. The Marines that I commanded, we had worked together for six months. The training that I got from the Australian Army, and that goes to a lot of, you know, I speak to young officers when I was at RSM School of Armour, to the young ROBC. I was trained by a bunch of soldiers that never went to Vietnam. I always got taught why I was learning things, and that's always stuck in my mind. So that day, I really don't know what I was thinking, and I say that honestly, because I took two rounds when I was on the flex mount, the machine gun stopped firing, it wouldn't work, so I cocked it, I went through my drills, it still wouldn't work, so I changed the ammunition line around, put a new liner on, and I continued to fire. And it wasn't until after the contact and the gunner was asking me, Sergeant Kanicki was asking me why the flex mount had stopped, and I said, I, I don't know. And I said, but the, the line is behind me. When he picked it up, the ammunition liner was chest height. When he picked it up, there was two 
two rounds had gone through the ammunition liner and it was the liner and the ammunition that stopped those two rounds. So if it would have gone through, it would have hit me clean in the chest. That day, I think I could see everything unfolding and it was the same as when we were firing main gun. Uh, the insurgency, they, the rounds weren't making an impact on them because they were coming up from the river, from the Euphrates River, and there was a bank and we couldn't get the gun, the main gun low enough. So I issued an order without thinking to go to single round well, sorry, 100 round rate, and to bring the gun up at horizontal height and fire into the palm or into the date trees in a Z pattern, which is a drill that we get taught but never execute because it's very, in training, it's very ammunition intense. So we don't normally get issued a lot of ammunitions to do it. And I simply issued an order to go to a Z pattern and provide suppressing fire, aiming at the trees so that the HE rounds would airburst amongst the, the incoming insurgents. And uh, I remember Rob Cossett, the battalion commander, asking me, what made me think to give that order? And I said to Rob, after it all, I, I said, I have no idea, sir. It was just a drill that kicked in and I just simply wanted to put maximum rounds downrange. So, yeah, I think it's just training. So drills and training. And then indeed, when you came back from that deployment, I mean, that was what you were then able to pass on to the next generation of soldiers because you did a lot of instructional work as well, didn't you? From that deployment, I came back to America for six months and then I redeployed to Australia as the SMA squadron 2 cav and went straight back into Iraq with OBG3, which was with 5RR and uh, General Elwood, who was the battalion commander of the 5th Battalion then. From that experience, sitting up at, uh, at the Coltana, doing our mission rehearsal exercise, getting ready to go back into Iraq down the Althama area, I was actually able to pass a lot of that experience on to the squadron and to 5RAR. And one of the things I showed them was the Z pattern and um, providing suppressing fire. I went down there and I put up a whole infantry company, you know, uh, figure 11s, the size of an infantry company in the frontage. And I got a troop of labs up there and I showed the battalion what 25 mil suppressing fire will do to an infantry company in the open. And uh, a lot of the soldiers from 5RIA had never seen that. And a lot of the soldiers from 2CAV had never experienced that. And they got to do it that day and show the effect. And I, th- I think a lot of that also gave them great um, encouragement that the vehicles that we had and the equipment the Australian Army got was going to save their lives. So it, it really brought it out for them. What was the difference then in terms of going back to Iraq with the Australians after having served there with the US forces? Was there a difference in the way things were done or was there a difference in just the whole kind of the sense of the deployment from your experience? I'm very easy to adapt to um, what the mission is. I focus on what the mission is. I even did that with the US as we phased different lines. As I said, we went from Rivergate to Steel Curtain and Steel Curtain was a very heavy fight on the Syrian border. We cleared five cities in, in a month. So that was still intense. And then when we completed that, then we went back into the Iraqi elections. And we started getting out and talking to the Iraqis and, you know, making friends with them. So when I came back into Iraq, we were down in the south. And the Australians have been there a long time. And again, as I said, Australians are fairly friendly. And I noticed that when I was even on the Euphrates River with the Americans in Husayba. The Marines are very protective towards me. Every time someone got near me because there was a bounty on my head, they used to get worried. So they were very protective towards who I was and they wanted to make sure that none of them under their watch was going to be responsible for losing an Australian. But an Iraqi came up with a eucalyptus leaf and he broke it and he stuck it under my nose and tapped my Australian flag and said, these trees belong to Australians. 
For what I understand, up around that region, Australia had done a lot of agricultural research and, and helped the Iraqis out in the early days of, of the 60s and that. They knew who Australians were and, and down the south where the Australian Battle Group was working, where I went in 2007, we were trainers and so the whole mission was different and I was able to adapt from each mission and it was the same as a lot of the boys I had with me in A Squadron. They were on their second and third tours of Iraq as well because they had done um, AMTG1 or they had done the SECDETs. Trying to tell them that each mission was different and, you know, don't treat each mission the same. If you've been here before, you know the lay of the land, use the land and all that knowledge to your advantage. But each mission is totally different. And I was able to do that. And I learned that experience even when going into Afghanistan as the RSM of the last battle group. I was able to focus on our mission where a lot of us, all the fighting had died off what Australia had been done. So trying to tell the young soldiers that they weren't going out on search and destroy missions. They were there to retrograde and pull Australian assets back out of Afghanistan. So I was very easy to adopt the mission focus. Before we turn to your deployment to Afghanistan, You did mention there, there was a bounty on your head. Tell us a bit more about that because, I mean, there can't be many people who can say, hand on heart, there's been a bounty on my head. Uh, yeah, we found some flyers when we were up on the on the Syrian border. Um, there was a picture of our labs because I always used to fly. Well, I used to wear Australian uniform for starters, the odd person out. So um, the Marines, like us, they get a combat action ribbon and it's like the ICB and the, and the ACB. But the combat action ribbon for the Marine Corps is earned like ours. However, the difference between ours and theirs is that a Marine to earn his combat action ribbon must be in a bona fide firefight. So he must be in contact to earn it. And not only must he be in contact, his actions and drills in that contact are questioned. So, you know, you can have a lead company in a battalion in contact. The rest of the battalion may not be in contact. That company will be the only ones that will be awarded the combat action ribbon. It's a big thing for the Marines to earn their combat action ribbon. Being the platoon commander of the battalion jump, that's what the platoon was called, as I said, my job was to provide close protection to the battalion commander and the battalion commander, and that's called the platoon the jump because he jumps between the battle space. So wherever, whatever company's in contact, the battalion commander wants to go. So my job was to get him there. So it was word it got around the division that if you wanted to earn your combat action ribbon, go and visit 1st LAR and try and hitch a ride with the battalion commander because the Australian Warrant Officer up there will get you into a contact. Not of my choice, but... You know, it's because of our moves, we always we were in contact nearly every day. So on the Syrian border, sometimes I used to wear a Marine uniform so that I wouldn't stand out so much. But yeah, we found some flyers and there was a picture of a Lav 25 with an Australian on it. And there was a, it was a bounty on the platoon and there was a bounty for the Australian, the odd one out. So yeah, so it was quite funny at the time after we found out about it but um, we, you know, and I don't think Joanne laughed about it when she found out because I told her I had a very quiet deployment so yeah so we discovered there was a bounty on our heads and it didn't bother you? Uh, no I spoke to someone not long ago about this I um, when I first got to Iraq with the Marines as I said it was very hearing because I got blown up six times when we used to go out on, on our patrols especially on the roads, on the underpasses, I used to cringe. And it got to a point where I, I found that I rang Joanne and Regan up one night and I never said goodbye to them. I said, I'll see you later. I made a conscious decision that if something was going to happen, it was going to happen. It was meant to be. I'm not a religious person, but I, I thought, well, if it's I'm in a hostile area and I can't constantly be worried about if something happens. So I, I, I suppose I made peace with everything and thought if something was going to happen, it was going to happen. It was meant to be and I'll see you later. The fact is, nothing did happen. No, that's dead right. 
three times to Iraq and then in Afghanistan. So, um, so yeah, and I used to say that to the boys too when I was in Iraq with the Australians, with, with A Squadron. Um, I say, young Hamden, my driver, you know, I said, every now and then you're going to look the devil in the eyes and tell him to get nicked. It's not your day today. Because he used to get worried because he'd figure that I'd been blown up six times and shot several times. It was, I was like a cat. I didn't have many lives left. But I told him it's, it wasn't our time and it was never going to be our time. So it was just not to worry about it, just focus on the job at hand. So by the time you got to Afghanistan, your experience of being in contact and your experience of, of high-risk combat was considerable. Uh, yeah, but as again, it was for Iraq and it was for those tears. Uh, I didn't know what I was getting into in Afghanistan. But uh, as I said, I sat back and looked at our mission and it was retrograde with the last battle group in there. So it was mainly security around TK as the forces pulled out. I went out on a couple of dismounted patrols with the infantry because that was my nature. I had to go out there and, and see things. I was old enough too and to understand what we were doing and to know the signs that was that we were looking for. So yeah, I think it was just trying to get everyone to relax and say, hey, it's a dangerous mission. Don't switch off. You know, 24 seven. Uh, relax. However, when you step outside that wall, it's game face on and it's get in there. So, yeah. How did it differ, though, fighting against the Taliban compared to fighting in Iraq? I think the Taliban, because there were a lot of foreign fighters, I think they were more motivated. The foreign fighters in Iraq were the same. They were very motivated. And I found that up north when I was with the Marines, it was the same as the IEDs were different from down south, and there's the same as the insurgency. The insurgency down south was mainly tribal. Uh, we're up on the Syrian border. There's a lot of foreign fighters. So they were very aggressive in the north compared to the south. So um, especially in the cities, especially up in the city of New Ubaidi, that was a very that was a very heavy fight. The Taliban and the foreign fighters, they were aggressive. And, and I suppose the Iraqi fighters that I had to deal with that were aggressive was the day that we went hunting for Zakawi which was, I, I suppose, if you want to put it bluntly, he was the, the uh, Bin Laden of Iraq, Zakawi was, and I, I think US Special Forces uh, blew him up later on, and I think Commander Special Forces wasn't going to risk them trying to take him out because he had a habit of fleeing. So we were we got a radio hit and told that we had to go and get Zakawi, and that was the day we lost Bob and Chad got killed. Yeah, we went in there, got told Zakawi was in the area, we had to react quickly. We cordoned off the area. Alpha Company, Captain Lang Company secured the area with two platoons of lab. And when they dismounted to go and clear the building, there was five, five of Zakawi's henchmen in there. And Zakawi wasn't there. Yeah, and that, that day, yeah, where Bob and Chad were killed, that was, that, was a, that was an intense day too. They were dedicated foreign fighters and they, they meant business. With the Iraqi insurgency, the villagers, the tribal ones, I don't think they were dedicated to the cause as, as much as a foreign fighter. And you're saying it was very similar in Afghanistan, that with the foreign fighters there too, who were with the Taliban, that you saw that similar kind of determination? Uh, yes, yes. It was the foreign fighters. And, and I think a lot of them, they were there for a reason. The locals, I think they were just, they were there, do their business, and then they went back to the village. I don't think they were overly concerned with the fight. That was, that was my opinion, but it was mainly the foreign fighters that I think we had a lot of trouble with. And after you deployed to Afghanistan, you had another final deployment to Iraq. That was when you were awarded a meritorious service medal, again from the US forces. So what was that final deployment like for you? And, and indeed, 
Is it going to be your final deployment or do you intend to go overseas again? Yeah, that's a hard one. I'd love to go deploy. I mean, I've been in the Army 34 years and, and I don't say I enjoy deploying. I, I find it exciting. And I've, I've done the three phases, I would say, because I, I deployed to Somalia as a corporal. I went into Iraq as, as a platoon commander and I went back into Iraq again as a squadron sergeant major. Then I went into Afghanistan as a regimental sergeant major. And then when I deployed back into Iraq in 2017, first off with the 1st Infantry Division, US Army, and then they ripped out and the 1st Armoured Division came in. I was the J7 Sergeant Major on the Divisional Headquarters. So I was, um, I was a Sergeant Major for the, um, the training and development of the Iraqi Army. To go back into Iraq in 17 and be involved in the planning for Mosul and the MIRV, the, the, the Middle Euphrates uh, region, the Valley region, it was um, to be involved in the planning, having gone through and fought up through those regions, in 2005 and six, when I was with the Marines, I fought heavily through all those areas. Now I was, in 2017, I was on the headquarters planning the Iraqi army's fight through that area. It was exactly the same area in five and six that I had, had fought. And it was, it was unbelievable to sit there and watch and be involved in the planning and to see the way we were coordinating planning and I sat there and it was quite funny because I was talking to um, Major Brooker. She was the Australian intelligence officer involved in the, the J-5 cell. And uh, I walked up to her one day and I said, ma'am, this next stage is a planning. We need to be, and this is for the city of Husaba. I said, we need to be cautious of this area around this bridge. And I said, because in 2005, it was, it was a heavy minefield. And she said, oh, how do you know that, Sergeant Major? And I said, well, in 2005, I used to transit through that area and the division jumped following my tracks didn't stick to my tracks and took a corner wide and a Humvee hit a mine. The Marine lost two legs. And I said, when we went back and recovered it and an Amtrak come in from the north, that hit a mine coming in. And we discovered that was a minefield of two and a half kilometres wide. It was a minefield that had been laid, not during the Iraq war, it was a deterrent for Syria. So it was an old minefield. Now, I said, that was in 2005. Is the minefield still there, ma'am? I said, I have no idea. But if we're going to go in, we need to be cautious that there's old legacy minefields that were in that area from previous wars. And she said, what do you mean 2005, Sergeant Major? I said, ma'am, I was over here doing exactly the same missions, but with the Americans. And uh, yeah, I remember a, a Marine Major listening to it and he goes, what do you mean, Sergeant Major? I said, sir, while you are at college, I was over here fighting. I said, you know, this war is nothing new. The only difference is, is that coalition forces aren't committed. We're now training the Iraqi army to clear their own thing. So that was that was amazing to be involved in that and sitting there and be able to make input into a lot of that terrain that, as I said, that I had experienced firsthand 10 years previously in heavy fighting. So it was, um, so as I said, to go from corporal on operations as a warrant officer, as a platoon commander, then as a regimental sergeant major, and then back into a planning team on a divisional headquarters, yeah, it's it's... To sit there and look at what I'd done, I, I'm very honoured that the Australian Army has given me those opportunities. And would I deploy again? In a heartbeat. I have to ask, what was their reaction when they realised quite your depth of experience? And not just experience, but first-hand on-the-ground experience in the same area of conflict. It was interesting because the general, and, and I, I suppose a lot of the senior officers had experienced the Iraqi Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah, for the young officers, it was their first time. And, and then they, you'd, you'd see them to start to realise that the SARP majors, you know, and not just myself, but, you know, the US SARP majors are sitting at the table in the early phases of each mission, that they realised that, you know, we had been there on the ground in the fight. It was a good education for me and it was a good education for them. 
You mentioned you deploy again in a heartbeat. What about Joanne? How does she feel about your career and the fact you've been overseas so much? And I imagine she's obviously had her own very busy and intense and successful career with the Australian Army. She's my hero. I look up to her. She's deployed to Somalia, uh, Rwanda. Yeah, so she backed up from Somalia in 93. She went to Rwanda in 95. And I listened to her and what she went through with, with that deployment to Rwanda. It was quite amazing you know, what, what the soldiers went through. And then she went back to, or she de- then redeployed to Afghanistan um, in 2012. And she was there for 13. So I think one of the greatest achievements I would say that I've ever had my experience in my life with her would be the fact that when I deployed to Iraq in 13, as the RSM2 cab, she was the, the woe med for seven RER. As they were ripping out, I was ripping in. So I got to spend a month and a bit with her in Afghanistan. So yeah, yeah she's an amazing woman. I'd say that our listeners would agree that you're quite an amazing couple. I mean, between you, your depth of experience and the degree of service and sacrifice that, that your family has given to the security of Australia is, is incredible. Yeah, I think it's my young 21-year-old son that's um, probably gone uh, without most. He was a young fellow when I deployed to Iraq with the Marine Corps. He didn't know what was going on at the time. He was grade two in in primary school. When I walked him to school the day I I deployed and told him where I was going, he understood it. Growing up in uh, his time in America, he would go to school, come to school one day, play with his mate. The next day, his little mate wasn't there because his his mate's father had been killed in Iraq or, or, or wounded. So Regan grew up very quickly understanding what his mum and dad had done in the army and um, he used to constantly argue with his teachers over it. And I remember being called to school and when I come back from that deployment, he asked me if I was was ever going to go again and I made a promise that I wasn't. So I broke that promise to him a couple of months after arriving back in Australia. But I remember him having an argument with his uh, his teacher one day. He'd drawn a picture and his teacher took offence to the picture and it was a war picture. And I didn't consider anything worse about it than... um, but I used to draw at his age of aeroplanes and listen you know, to the stories of my grandfather talk. But I remember when he had the teacher, he said, um, bad people die in war. And the teacher said, oh, no one dies. And he goes, yes, my dad does that. So he was very adamant. And when I got called to the school and I was on, on MRE getting ready to go back into Iraq when I got was on leave and I came back and I said to the teacher, yes, I never tell my son that he doesn't know what's going on because he's growing up with it. And then when he was at Durham College in um, Canberra, where my wife and son now live, he um, had an argument with his teacher. And that's when both of us were in Afghanistan. And the teacher had told him that the war in Afghanistan was wrong. And he blatantly stood up and said, don't you dare say that. My mother and father are both over there now. And he gave her a mouthful, which um, at the time was he was being looked after by my mother and my stepfather, who who Ray had done a tour of Borneo and two tours of Vietnam with SAS. So, yeah, again, so Ray or Regan knows a lot about it. So, yeah, I look, I look at Regan, I suppose, and, and I said that on a speech when I addressed um, Melbourne on Anzac Day 2011 when I spoke about what it was like to be a veteran to me. And I said, um, if anyone knew more than anybody, I said, I've got my, at the time, my 14-year-old son standing to the right of me. He celebrates, well, he attends Anzac Day here in Melbourne with me while his mother attends dawn service in Canberra. And I said, it's a sacrifice that the spouses and, and the children of servicemen give that, that are the biggest sacrifice. In fact, I remember being at the Shrine of Remembrance and hearing you give that speech in 2011 and the reaction from the crowds that you could have heard a pin drop. People were utterly engaged and very touched by what you shared that day. Yeah, it was. I mean, I really didn't know what to say when I got up there. And I um, I think I wrote the speech five times. 
Colonel Archer was the CO at the time. Yeah, he um he went through it several times with me. I spoke about the sacrifice, and to me, it's not about Anzac Day. It's not about gl- the glorification of war or, or the battles that we won. It's it's the sacrifice that our our young Australian women and men give to the nation, and it's not just our nation. It's it's everyone's nation because at the end of the day, as I say to people, you know, when it even comes when people question about how much aid we give to our neighbours, it's about being a good neighbour. I think the sacrifice that young men and women give our nation and other nations, but it's it's mainly the sacrifice our families give. That needs to be recognised, and I don't think they get enough recognition. Warrant Officer Class 1, Craig Cook, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, for your honesty, for your insight, and for your incredible service to Australia, and indeed operations overseas, particularly with the US forces in, in the Middle Eastern area of operations. It's a pleasure talking with you today, Sharon. This is Sharon Maskeldare, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. Learn more about this podcast and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We're also on social media. Follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod, like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.